Okay. Whenever you're ready. I'm ready. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the intro. Yep. Who? You. Okay. See this? Now this is, these are great outtakes. We should definitely use these. <laughs> no. <laughs> It seems weird. I can't actually welcome you to your own show. So I'm just going to say, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am terrific. And uh, welcome to everyone to this first episode of this unnamed podcast featuring Taylor Stevens, where we're sort of taking a deep dive into the writing process for her new book, The Mask, that's coming out on June 30th. So for people who are listening who may not know who Taylor Stevens is, I'm going to give you a quick bio. Taylor Stevens is the award-winning New York Times bestselling author of the critically acclaimed Vanessa Michael Monroe series, published in over 20 languages and optioned for film by James Cameron's production company. Taylor's books are international boots-on-the-ground thrillers featuring a mercenary information hunter that has been called a non-testosterone mix of Jason Bourne and Jack Reacher. Taylor came to writing fiction late in life, and for good reason. She was born into an apocalyptic cult and raised in communes around the world. She was denied an education beyond the sixth grade and spent her adolescence as child labor. And that's the short version. You'll hear bits and pieces of how someone with the deck so firmly stacked against her early in life overcame those obstacles to become the person we're talking to today. So, Taylor, welcome to your own show. <laughs> Thank you. And I, and I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you doing this with me because it's so much easier to banter back and forth than to have to sit there and just talk into an empty space. <laughs> so what, what we're doing with this series of podcasts is we're, we're leading up to the release of The Mask. And we're going to start today with... Your, your writing has been described as boots-on-the-ground thrillers. So we're going to talk about boots-on-the-ground research and the way you research your books and what specifically you did to research this book, The Mask. So let's, let's start with Japan. The Mask is set in Japan. How did you happen to select Japan? That is a very good question. Um, all of these books in the series are international uh, thrillers. I, I call them high-octane character studies, but they, there's no genre for high-octane character mm -hmm. studies, so they, they get qualified as thrillers. And uh, each location is different. Uh, I think we've finally made it pretty much through all the continents except for Antarctica and Australia, and who knows, I might be able to find those as well. And um, each, each book is written specifically for the location that the setting is in. And uh, in this particular case, I knew I wanted to set a story in Japan because I had lived there for around five years when I was much younger. It was one of, one of the places where some of the worst things that happened to me growing up in the religious cult that I was raised in happened to me. So I had two reasons for wanting to go to Japan to, uh, to write this book, to tell this story. One was to reclaim the past. And the other was to get that authentic feel for the location that's so critical to all of the stories that, um, that are in this series. So why I chose Japan was because I hadn't done a book in Asia or the Pacific yet. And the second was because 
I wanted to go back. So this reclaiming the past thing, it, it, go in a little bit deeper about that, because I, I have a sense of what you mean, but I'm not entirely sure. Well, in this group that I was born into and raised in, like you, like you said in the intro, we, uh, I grew up as child, a child laborer. Child labor. Um, my education stopped when I was 12, and most of my days were spent either uh, taking care of other people's kids, lots of kids, because the communes could be anywhere in size from 30 to 100 or more, um, cooking for all those people, cleaning. It was very much drudgery. But in Japan, I spent a lot of time out on the streets begging because the cult didn't believe in having um, uh, gainful employment that was considered working for the devil. (laughs) But we still needed money to pay rent and um, buy things that we couldn't get people to give us for free. And Japan is a little bit different from any of the other places that I had lived because it's a very, uh, I guess, I don't want to say this in a derogatory sense. I don't mean it badly, but it's a little bit insular. Most of the country is, I think it's like 98% of the population is the same uh, race and, and culture. And foreigners really do stand out. And it's, it's just a different mentality. It's, Japan is a, is a mentality of austerity and harshness. Uh, they, they believe in not going easy on things. So to put kids out on the street begging in that environment, it was long, long, long days of many, many people saying no, 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 to get the money that we needed to support the, the communes that we were living in. And I'm tall and um, not exactly rail thin. And so even finding things like clothes that fit me, um, shoes that fit, the, the Japanese foot size for women is smaller than my foot. So living there for five years, you can imagine um, how few clothes I had, how few shoes I had. So I was cold all the time, out on the streets, begging, um, not with my parents, didn't have my parents uh, looking out for me. And just the most, it was a really, really awful situation for years of, of neglect and 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 destitution. And I wanted to go back and see the things that I saw. We we would go begging outside uh, castles and tourist destinations and um, five years in Japan. And I never really ate the things that people there ate. I, I wanted to, but you had to buy them and we didn't have the money for it. So for five years, the things that I smelled and the things that I saw and could never partake of, I wanted to go back and, and see it as an adult who was not impoverished and who could buy those things and visit those places and, and reclaim all of that and come back from a place of triumph instead of a place of pain. How old were you when you were there? What was the, the age range? I arrived shortly after my 12th birthday and left uh, after my 17th, when, right before I turned 18. So you not only couldn't find clothes that fit, you were probably growing like crazy between yes. 12 and 17 as yes, well. Yes, I was. I wore uh, boy's shoes and um, just anything I could find that fit, and none of it ever matched, and it was never warm. So you went over to Japan to do the research and, and to reclaim your past, as you've just described. Um, we'll get into the research in a little bit, but... Did you feel like by the time you left, did you feel like you'd put some of the past behind you? Very much so. It was a very, very interesting experience, um, emotional at some times and bizarre in others. I was never fluent in Japanese when I was living there, 
but I could, you know, communicate and get by. But I hadn't spoken or been around the language, hadn't tried to read the language for over 25 years. So to go back there and be able to still read things, very, very small things. It's, it's a very, not the kanji, just the, the, the hiragana and the katakana. Um, it, it was odd. And then um, one of the most interesting experience I had was in a, um, a convenience store. There are convenience stores everywhere, like practically on every other corner there. I went into a convenience store and I saw this box of, I guess it's like an energy bar or something to that effect, on a shelf. And I had this flash. I was like, oh, my God, I, I know what that is. I, I know that. I can taste it inside my head but I had no actual memory of ever having eaten it. Really? But I knew that I had because it was instant recognition and I knew that I was very familiar with it. And in the 25 years since I had been there, they had had multiple flavors of this, this thing. And so I didn't know which one it was, but the minute I opened the package that had the one that I had eaten, and apparently I must have loved it back then. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, yes, this is it. And and things just lit up inside my brain. And it was so weird to have the – and it happened like that, but not as drastic as that. Multiple times of, I know this. I know this thing, but no actual memory of how I knew it. Hmm. What, what, what an enlightening experience that must have been. Well, when you When you went over, did you have a set plan for doing research, or did it sort of evolve while you were there? Well, every book that I've done has been a little bit different in that regard. Um, some of them, well, with the first one, which was The Informationist, I had lived extensively in Equatorial Guinea for, so I knew, I mean, I'd lived there for two years, so I knew the area extensively. I didn't have to go back to research it. So I wrote that story around where I'd been and what I knew. Um, in, in some of the other books that I've done, I did most of my research ahead of time, and I pretty much had the whole story written with just gaps of things that I needed to see this, smell this, touch this, go to this place, so that I could fill in the authenticity to make sure that what I was writing was accurate. And it usually involved having to restructure or change part of the book, but that was okay. It, it made it real. In this particular case, I had a subject matter that I wanted to write about, and I had a general idea of what to write about. But because getting the actual the actual insight that I needed, I couldn't do it online. There just wasn't, it, if you've ever tried to Google an address in Japan, I, I, I dare you to do it because it's all in kanji. Uh, so I couldn't, couldn't do as much internet research ahead of time as I needed to. So I went there with an idea and I let the location guide me and things that I learned. And I was very, very fortunate because what I try really hard to do in each of these books is find something about the location that is not as commonly spoken of or written about in, in American culture for, for any of these locations. So in, in the case of Japan, I didn't want to write about what we imagine Japan to be high tech and gadgets, which it's really not that way in a lot of places. I wanted to find things that are, are less, less known. And, and I was really fortunate because I was able to stay with friends who, had, who I'd known from a long time ago and who had been in Japan for decades, spoke, if not fluent, then close to fluent Japanese, could read a lot of Japanese. And 
I listened. I listened so much to the stories they told me about life there and experiences they or friends of their of theirs had had as foreigners in Japan. And through all of that, the listening and and the just being present in it, I was able to pull together what I needed to make this book what it was. And we'll get into some of the ways that showed up in the book uh, later on in this series. But right now we're just talking about the research. So by the time you left, did you feel like you had everything you needed or is it, was it the kind of thing that you could have stayed for another month and just kept learning? I had as much as I could, could use until I wrote the book. So, Because a lot of times in the writing process, it doesn't always follow the path that you think it's going to take. And sometimes you don't even know the questions that you need to ask until you're faced with them right there on the page. So gratefully, I still had that line of connection and I would be writing it and Skyping with them going, and what about this? And what about that? And can you confirm this for me? You confirm that for me. So I couldn't have done it without the help that I had in, in getting the level of authenticity that's in there. For people who may not be familiar with your books yet, Taylor, what's the best way for people to get a sense of all the different boots-on-the-ground locations that you've used in your books? I'd say the best way is to go to my website. It's uh, taylorstevensbooks.com. Very important to get that books in there because otherwise you might get Taylor Stevens, the um, webcam star who's an awesome person, I will say. She's awesome. Um, but you just probably don't want her site because it's not safe for work. I have a list of all the books that are there in chronological order, and it gives an outline of where they were uh, set and the general stories, and you can get them all in one place. And um, I, I've tried to make it as fun and as visually entertaining as possible. And you've also got links at the very top of your website where people can buy the books. You can actually pre-order the mask now. Uh, so definitely go to taylorstevensbooks.com and check it all out. Okay, so this is pretty much a wrap for the first episode, which is all about research. The next episode, we're going to talk about languages. If, if you're already reading Taylor's books, you know there's a component of language in all of them. We're going to get deeply into that in the next episode. This is weird, but Taylor, thanks for uh, joining us on your show. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs>